I knew the, the general outlines of the story as well. I knew Brian Wilson was meant to be a genius and all this kind of thing, but it wasn't something that had ever hugely drawn my attention. But then in summer 95, Mojo magazine did this list of the 100 greatest albums of all time. And number three was um, Revolver by the Beatles. Number two was Astral Weeks. And then number one was Pet Sounds. And I loved Revolver and Astral Weeks so much that I thought, I've got to check out Pet Sounds. And I bought the album, and the first time it didn't really do that much for me, uh, except for the song I Just Wasn't Made For These Times, which really, really spoke to me. As I was 16 at the time, and this is just like, you know, I was in prime angsty teenager mode, and and that is the perfect angsty teenager song. Welcome to a new episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. But today we are broadening this train. We are uh, talking the history of rock and roll. That's right. We're going to discuss everything in the next uh, 60 minutes or so, and you will never need to have any other questions. Maybe not. (laughs) Um, joining me today is Andrew Hickey. He is a extraordinary podcaster, an extraordinary writer, and someone who I've spent 10 minutes talking to and I already adore. Welcome to the show. Hi, good to be on here. Thanks for having me. So um, I always give it – so give us your elevator pitch. Tell my listeners a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, there's about myself and there's about the podcast are two different things, really. Uh, the podcast is it's uh, it's called A History of Rock Music in 500 Songs, and it's attempting to do just that. I start in 1938, and it's going to go up to the year 2000. And roughly speaking, it's going to be about 10 songs per year, some years a few more, some a few less, trying to chart the history of rock from the very beginnings of electric guitar amplification all the way to around the year 2000, which is when I believe that rock music stopped being such an active cultural force. and it, be, it became, there's plenty of good rock music made in the last 20 years, but it's mostly been sort of consciously nostalgic and retrospective. It's not been innovative in the way it was during the last half of the last century. So I've, I'm currently, I've just published yesterday episode 89 and I'm up to 1960 at the moment. I think, I think 60, maybe 61. I, um, but I'm, I've covered Elvis's early years. I've covered Fats Domino, Little Richard, Bill Haley, but also quite a few people who would not necessarily get the sort of in-depth coverage I've given them. I've talked about, I've done multiple episodes on Johnny Otis, for example, who's somebody who was hugely important, but is normally sort of regarded as a bit of a footnote. And I've covered a few early British rock and rollers and things like that. Yeah. So that's the podcast. And, yeah. and yes, and I we're going to get to that, and I have a lot of questions. But I would like to hear about you, too. So tell me a little bit about you. And, uh, and I always ask people when they start, talk about growing up. What kind of music did you listen to growing up? Was your family into music? Um, my family have, have always been big music fans. Not, not to the extent I am, but my dad had 
quite a large record collection. And when I, when I was growing up, I never listened to the pop music that the other kids were listening to. I listened, I, I sort of started with the Beatles and worked backwards kind of thing rather than forwards. Um, I, I only got into 70s, 80s, 90s music in uh, in my adulthood as a kid I, I sort of started with the Beatles I, I used to love Frank Zappa as well as a very small child um, and then I, I started listening to old blues records and to swing and jazz records I was probably the only 10 year old in the entire country who had an 8 album box set of Glenn Miller records you know so I, I love that and that's that's the kind of thing I was listening to um, I I was a f- fairly odd kid I'm, I'm autistic and was undiagnosed at the time and so i had sort of my own my own separate little world i was in separate from everybody else and I, I i started delving into music history from a very early age um and yeah i i mean i was i was uh, my parents were listening to to a lot of the people from the 60s and early 70s they were listening to the the, the beatles frank zappa dylan david bowie a lot of sort of fairly obscure folky artists, people like the Incredible String Band and so on, people like Dr. John, Captain Beefheart, that kind of stuff. And that was the music that I, that sort of imprinted on me as a kid. But then one of the few sort of 80s pop people I ever listened to was um, a teeny bopper star of the early 80s called Shaken Stevens, who was basically an Elvis impersonator. And because of him, I got into Elvis. And from there, I sort of went backwards and backwards and backwards, you know, and only later did I catch up with what people, everybody else was listening to in 1985 or 86 or whatever, you know. Um, you've, you've also written a lot of books, Andrew, and, and I, I kind of <coughs> want to start out with, um, I read you, you wrote a collection of Beach Boy books where you covered yeah. all their albums, including all the solo stuff. Yeah. Um, and Overall, we're in sync. Um, I, I think one of the things that you are right and I'm wrong, but I can't help it, is um, I remember being so excited that Carl Wilson was putting out a solo album because right. at the time that they were just the greatest hits band. Yeah. And 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 I remember buying that album and listening to new music, and then I got lucky. Um, I, I lived in. A little town in Louisiana, but we were in Dallas, Texas, visiting uh, my now wife, but at the time's girlfriend's brother, and Carl Wilson was playing at a small club here in wow. Dallas. It just happened to be. So I went, me and Linda went and saw him. Um, wow. He did basically just the songs from the album, and then yeah. a couple of the songs he did, uh, like Long Promise Road and, and yeah. a couple others. And that experience of seeing him solo, I I have nostalgia for that album. Absolutely, I, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Th- that's that's that must have been fantastic. I didn't get into the Beach Boys until '95, and I never had the chance to see Carl live. Yeah. So, um, so it's, it's different for me. But ob- but obviously, one's own personal relationship with a record is going to be different from the relationship of, of another person. And in that in that those particular cases, I can see things to like about those albums. But um, and I imagine. If you're coming to them in 1980, 81, if you if you're seeing him live, it must have been a totally different experience. Yeah, for me, looking back 40 years later and saying, sure, absolutely. yeah, you know what, I see this problem and this problem and this problem, and you know, it, it's it's a totally different thing looking at something in retrospect than looking at something from the time when it's happening. Yeah. So uh, that's 
it's interesting you've, you you kind of discovered the Beach Boys in 95, and I'm going to, if you don't mind, I'm going to spend a couple of minutes talking about that. I did not discover until 77. I've told right. this story before. I, I was, um, I had graduated high school. I, it was a Saturday night. I had nothing to do. I ended up going into a Montgomery Ward's. Which is like a big target, or you know, a, you know, yeah. a, a, and there they had a they had a record section or eight track section back then, and I bought Endless Summer, right, because it was on sale, and yeah. put it in my eight track player and blew away, and yeah. from ever that moment, and I became this huge Beach Boy fan, and especially Brian Wilson's music. Um, what in '95 led you to find them? Right. Well, I mean, I knew of the Beach Boys previously. I I think I even owned one cassette, like the Best of the Beach Boys Volume Three or something. But I didn't really know. You know I I I I knew the the general outlines of the story as well. I knew Brian Wilson was meant to be a genius and all this kind of thing. But it wasn't something that had ever hugely drawn my attention. But then in summer '95, Mojo Magazine did this list of the hundred greatest albums of all time, and number three was. Um, Revolver by the Beatles, number two was Astral Weeks, and then number one was Pet Sounds. And I loved Revolver and Astral Weeks so much that I thought, I've got to check out Pet Sounds. And I bought the album, and the first time it didn't really do that much for me, uh, except for the song I Just Wasn't Made For These Times, which really, really spoke to me. As I was 16 at the time, and this is just like, you know, I was in prime angsty teenager mode. Yes, and absolutely. And and that is the perfect angsty teenager song. And, you know, thank God it was that rather than some, some of the many, many other gloomy, angsty teenager songs I could have listened to, you know. Well, but Andrew, I will, there, yeah, I will tell you, it. I'm 61. I turned 61 in June. And, yeah. and at times, I just wasn't made for these times, speaks to this middle-aged yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. guy's angst. So I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, so that, that was it. And then that... About six months later, I, I started buying up everything I can. There wasn't that much in print at the time, but I got the Smiley Smile Wild Honey to for I got Brian's first solo album. And from there, very, very quickly, you know, within two years of two and a half years of that, I was on the board of the British Beach Boys fan club. You know, oh, I, I, how funny. I, yeah. You know, uh, it was that that big an escalation for me, you know. What's interesting is that. You know, I'm going through in 77, 78, finding cassettes, 8-tracks, albums. And um, the first time I listened to Pet Sounds, I didn't get it. I'm like, yeah. what What are these instrumentals on this thing? What yeah. What is this? I, I didn't get it. And yeah. um, and it was only and, – and now then, if Push – and obviously, I adore Bruce Springsteen. I do a Bruce Springsteen podcast. But yeah. Push Comes to Shove, I will list Pet Sounds as my favorite album. Yeah. It, because it, 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 I've grown into it, and I understand it. Yeah. Um, Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash Pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. So I want to go back to the podcast. First sure. off, I'm just going on the record. I adore the podcast. Thank it, you. it is so researched so well, yet it's it is an entertaining. You you make all the subjects. You you throw in so much facts, so much background. You are showing. You're connecting the dots. But you do yeah. it in a very entertaining way. Thank you. Um, so, um, <clears throat> so what? Let's let's talk about. You said you've been a historian all your life, but what made you think about? You know what? I think this is something I could. Enjoy. This is a pretty broad ambition. This is ambitious. What made you think about doing it and decided? Okay, this is. Let's just make it happen. Well, there were several different factors went in, went into this over a period of time. The very initial impetus for it actually came about 20 years ago. When I, when I was at university, I was studying at the time a course in popular music at Salford University. And there was a history, history of popular music class there. And what, at one point, the lecturers played a record by Carl Perkins to the class, and then they sort of said jokingly, don't worry, we don't expect you to be listening to Carl Perkins for fun, you just need to know that this exists. And I thought right then, and I've never stopped thinking, how on earth do they expect people to appreciate what this is if they, if they don't if they don't want people to be listening to this for fun, if they don't want people to understand, if, if, if they think that the idea of listening, of Teenagers of 1999, 2000, whatever it was, listening to Carl Perkins for fun is such a ridiculous idea. How can they possibly be teaching the history of, of popular music? Um, because to teach that history, you have to understand what it is that people liked about this stuff. You have to understand, you have to be able to enjoy it at least on some level yourself, and you have to be able to get that enjoyment across to other people. And that was the first thing. And there have been lots of little incidents like that over the years. Um, and then um, <clears throat> a couple of things happened. The f first one was I heard a podcast called C Cocaine and Rhinestones, which if your listeners haven't heard that, I urge you to check it out. It's a really good history of country music done by a bloke called Tyler Mayhan Coe. Uh, he's far more vigorous even than I am. He's taken two years to write his next season, which is still not out. Um, uh, uh, but it's very much the same kind of storytelling I do. It's very much the same kind of 
it's very much the same kind of thing that I do. And it sort of clicked with me that the podcast form could be a way to do this thing. And could it could be something that I could do after listening to that. Because his his storytelling style, his view on life is very much like mine as well. It just felt like a thing that I, if I had set out to make a country history podcast, then I would probably have made, I wouldn't have made one as good as his because he's a real country music expert and I'm not. But I would have made something similar to that. I thought I could do this. And then it also happened that around that time I was working as a freelance writer and my biggest source of income fell through all of a sudden. So I needed something to drive money to my Patreon. So I thought now's as good a time to do it as any. So it's that, com- that combination of needing the, needing the money, but also having this 20 year long pent-up urge to do this you know and so so you know no time like the present i started just before just before my 40th birthday bang there we go well um first off i echo you the cocaine and rhinestones um so good so complex um so well done um and you know he's i and I'm, I'm certainly not criticizing him. I'm just saying it's two different styles and two different choices. He is randomly picking stories to tell. Um, he yeah. is not doing a linear, okay, let's start at the beginning of country music and go. And, and that's yeah. been fascinating. And in some of the episodes, um, you know, like that he has covered, like the Loretta Lynn's and, and yeah. how – women uh, country artists are treated unfairly uh, about being, you know, um, banned and Tom T. Hall and all these other things are amazing. Um, I love the idea that you were like, okay, I'm going to go to the very beginnings of the roots. And um, to mix my metaphors, I felt like Ken Burns country music documentary that happened last year yeah, you are doing a similar vein. I'm going to show you at the very grains of how this started, and I'm yeah. going to tell you why that is. Um, yeah. I, I think it's a great choice, and I've enjoyed. So I'm going to ask you the dumb uh, question. Like, they ask writers, where do you get your ideas? Yeah. How do you pick the songs? Um, well, at the moment, it's... It's been quite easy up until about this point, because basically you there are up until the early 60s, there are only so many rock and roll records. Now, you could theoretically cover everything. And there is a great blog. I can't remember the name, but I'll I'll uh, tweet you the, the name of it later and you, you might be able to put it in show notes or something. There's a great blog that actually is trying to look at every single rock and roll record from 1949 onwards. Um, but, I mean, they've done like 200 records. They're up to 1952. So, you know, I'm, I'm not doing that. But, you know, the, the, of the 89 I've done now, there are roughly 40 or 50 that you just... You have to have, you know, you have to have a few Elvis tracks in there. You have to have somebody Holly ones. You have to have Little Richard. You, you know, all the, all those people. About half of the list is pre-made for you. Or if if you haven't pre-made, if the list isn't pre-made, then you 
if if you if you don't do something that's on that list, you have to give people a good reason why. You know, um, like I didn't cover Peggy Sue as as a record, but I but I covered Peggy Sue in another Buddy Holly episode. You know, yeah. but if I just not mentioned Peggy Sue at all, people would have gone, you know, what on earth? Why? Yeah, because I, I what I picture you doing now that you've explained that right is okay. I know I need to talk about. Uh, Fast Domino. I know I need to talk about yeah. Chuck Berry. I know I need to talk about Elvis Presley. As we get yeah. close, I know I'm going to need to talk about um, David Bowie and, and Bruce yeah. Springsteen and you know and, and the Beatles. So yeah. which and, and then I guess you go okay. Which of the songs do I think best explains that era of uh, their discussion? And then you can yeah. bring in other songs if you want to. Correct. That's right, yes. I mean, some of it is just like, um, some of it's about the specific song, and some, uh, it, it varies from song to song how I pick them. For example, there's one record called Kokomo by Gene and Eunice, which I had no intention of covering at the beginning. I didn't even know the record. But then as I was researching, if you go back into books written when this was still a live topic, everybody mentions Kokomo by Gene and Eunice, and I had never heard this, and I'd spent a lot of time Listening, listening to this music, so that in itself was an interesting avenue for me to go down. But when it comes to your your big names, your Fats Dominoes, your Elvis, your whoever, um, <clears throat> it's a combination of which song be- is best to encapsulate that era of their career, but also which song allows you to talk about events that you need to talk about. For example, with Buddy Holly, I did an episode on It Doesn't Matter Anymore, which was the last single he released before he died. Because you have to cover the death of Buddy Holly, you have to cover the the, the playing fashion, Richie Valens and all that. But if if I'd covered, say, Peggy Sue, I would I would then have had to cover the death of Buddy Holly in an episode set a year earlier than he died. And that throws out the timescale from everything else. So there's a sort of it's it's about both the arc of the individual performer's career, about what's musically interesting about the song itself, because sometimes it's just purely this song introduces a new recording technique or this song introduces a whole new style of music. And sometimes it's about the overall arc of the story I'm telling. You know, you have to you have to talk about Buddy Holly dying. You have to talk about Eddie Cochran dying. And so you have to choose songs that allow you not to place those deaths before you know you don't you don't want to talk about and buddy holly died here and then next week have somebody meeting buddy holly you know it it the story doesn't work that way well and i know like i remember (coughs) i I can't remember which book uh but when i was younger i was reading a book and they were talking about uh rock and rollers and and they mentioned that um and you covered a little bit about sam phillips selling Elvis's records, you know, to RCA, yeah. um, and there, and they said that if Carl Perkins had not had that car wreck, yeah. who knows that we would be looking at this totally different because yeah. he could have been, I won't say bigger than Elvis, but as big, and it, you could have seen yeah. that. Um, and yeah. so you, that when I heard you mention that, I went, oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Um, so I, I have two specific questions. First sure. off, and I shared this in a tweet, my mom, who is still with me, but adored Fats Domino. There are yeah. – she's got multiple Fats Domino albums. I remember there's one where he's got like a fire hat on, a fireman hat on. Right. And you um, 
you seem to have so much love for him and his music. Um, and and I just talk to me a little bit about that. Well, um, Fats Domino is one of the first 50s rock and rollers that I ever got into. Um, uh, it was like Elvis, Buddy Holly, then Fats Domino and Little Richard. So it was third, the third or fourth of the 50s people that I really started listening to. Um, and yes, I do. I absolutely adore his music. I adore New Orleans R&B generally. That's, that um, I've talked a lot about the influence of, uh, Afro-Caribbean music on um, New Orleans, and I, you know that that whole sort of laid-back style. I, I go into this in a lot more musicological detail in some of the episodes, but there's a, there's a whole rhythmic thing to New Orleans R&B that's that's there. And Fats Domino was the person who brought that into rock and roll, and he also. Without Fats Domino, we also wouldn't have Little Richard, we wouldn't have Lloyd Price, we wouldn't have all these, uh, not just New Orleans, but this this whole black element of 50s rock and roll wouldn't be there without him. Um, but the other thing about Fats Domino is he just seems to have been a thoroughly decent human being. He seems to have been a nice man, which is so rare when you're talking about this stuff. You know, I, I, there's a disclaimer episode I do fairly early on where I say, unless I specifically state otherwise, assume every man I'm talking about was a monster. Because they were. Rock and roll stars have almost without exception been horrible, horrible people for a whole variety of reasons to do with privilege, to do with, to do with just most of them being very young men and they become, they become massively famous and they get everything they want, all sorts of things. And also, becoming a musician sort of attracts a certain type of person anyway. But Fats Domino, you know, he, he, he had flaws. He, you know, he cheated on his wife a little bit, you know, uh, got, drank a little bit too much in, in his 20s, you know. But they were sort of normal human flaws. But you can't find a person who will say a bad word about the man. And there is no... You know, there, there is none of there's none of the sort of monstrous behaviour of you know a Chuck Berry or a Jerry Lee Lewis or an Elvis or a John Lennon or you know people who I admire in many ways, but they they were they were not great people as human beings. But Fats Domino would just seem just seem to be a really nice man, and also he, again I mentioned I'm autistic, and he is somebody who spent the last 20 years of his life not touring because he liked staying at home. He, he, he didn't like different, different food. He didn't like, you know, go, he, he liked his home comfort and he liked being around his family and being around the people he knew and the places he knew. And there was something about that that appeals to me. So as a person, he's, he see there's this sort of connection there, I, I feel. Uh, he, but, you know, he, he was, and, People forget Fats Domino a little bit now, these days. Uh, you know, they think, if, if they know him at all, they know one or two hits. But this is a man who was having dozens and dozens of hits. And he was the first of the 50s rock and rollers to ha have a hit. You know, he, his first record, uh, it was an R&B hit. It didn't, go pop and, it didn't go pop until later. But his first record was in 1949. And he carried on having hits through to the time the Beatles came up. You know, the, and... Lots of very, very big, successful records. He was a major, major artist. And that is because he wasn't, you know, getting married to his 17th wife and shooting her in the, in the wedding ceremony or whatever. People, the, the, there aren't the stories there about him that sort of create a rock legend. And I think that's very unfair. 
Anyway, that's <laughs> no, no. I because you kind of end the your ep, the final episode of discussing with them, and and listeners, if you haven't um, checked out the podcast, obviously <coughs> I want you to. But um, one of the things that Andrew has done so well is like there may be three episodes dedicated to Fats Domino at different times of his career. And so, um, and like just recently you discussed the Everly brothers and this will probably be the last time they get covered and you kind of do a summary of their career and their life. And you, like, I thought that was especially poignant that the two not necessarily got along well at all. Yeah. Uh, for a lot of reasons, political and just personal, and but yeah. when they sang, as you oh, talked yeah. about it, you can only sing that way when you have been in each other's lives your whole yeah. lives. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, what Tyler May Hancock calls blood harmony, you know, yes. and that's that's there in the Everlys, that's there in the Beach Boys, and a lot of these people really do not get along very well on a personal level, but that's. Yeah. But in the same way that you don't get along well with your, with your brother or yeah. your cousin or whoever, you know, pe- people who you've known your whole life. And so, you know, every bad thing about them, you know, yeah. Um, yeah, in, in the Everly Brothers case, it, it, yes, there was politics involved and stuff. But also, from what I can gather, their mother's a bit of a monster. And she basically she played favorites so heavily that that distorted everything mm-hmm. for them. You know, um, yeah. it's a very, very sad story in a lot of ways, the Everlies, but they were so good. They were so good, you know. It, it was, and, and I can remember um, after the fact seeing that filmed reunion special. And yeah. also one of my biggest memories is when the Beach Boys had a, I think it was their 25th anniversary that was The, the Hawaii TV. special, yes. Yes, yeah. and where they were talking about singing songs in the car and all of a sudden the Everly Brothers come up and go and we bet you were singing our songs and you just went yes Um, that was such a great moment Uh, so and yeah and to button up our Fat Sama discussion and you talk about that in the final episode you cover them is that you know you kind of give them this where you know you're you're a good man you have while no one is perfect overall a strong life great songs great hits but because you weren't crazy or outlandish you kind of are put on the side of history and that's kind of sad yeah absolutely absolutely i I think i think it is um and you know if if you Look at the pe- the the people who came up in the decade after him. You know, your, your Beatles and people like yeah. that. They all knew how great he was. It's right. only when when the, the time comes to write the myth of rock history that he becomes a footnote. You know, and it's it's very yeah. sad. So uh, earlier you mentioned something, and I, I made a note to talk to you about it. But I, I, so get your feelings on this. You mentioned about you know in that class of them saying, "Oh, and we're gonna we don't expect you to like Carl Perkins," and yeah. and. Um, I'm going to put this over to film for a moment. There are classics in the film that you go, oh, I'm supposed to watch this. Well, I remember yeah. years ago, it's uh, it's since there were DVDs, so it isn't that long ago, but I guess so. Yeah. I, I rented the original The Day Stood Still, Yeah. that film, yeah. and I ended up going, oh, my God, this is a great movie. 
This yeah, isn't yeah. a great movie for the times. This is yeah. just a great movie. And, and I think there are there are are music, period. I won't just say rock and roll. I don't care whether it's yeah. classic music, country music, yeah. no matter the genre, that when you play a song, you go, this is as relevant and as real and as yeah. entertaining as it was when it came out. I don't care if it was 10 years ago or 50 years ago. Absolutely. Um, I, I certainly find that. But at the same time, there has been music that I've come to appreciate very, very much, but that I've had to have like a way in. Um, and there's also music that I don't appreciate that I'm sure I would appreciate if I had a way in. I have very little knowledge of hip hop, for example, but yes. I am absolutely, I'm absolutely convinced that if, that if I was given, you know, start here and work through and like that, yeah. then I would grow to have an appreciation. Um, but yes, there are, I think the further you go back with any, with any art form at all, the harder it is to, to get that. But there are, there are still things that jump out and, and there will, there will yep. always be odd examples of stuff that jump out from, no matter how far back you go. You know, people still read the Iliad and the Odyssey, you know, um, yeah. you know, not as many, not as many people, I'm sure, as were entertained by them when Homer was yeah. reciting them. But, you know, the, but the, the further back you get, the more the sort of surface aspect of things become barriers. You know, like you said about The Day the Earth Stood Still. I agree, wonderful film. I've loved that since I was a kid. But I can imagine a lot of people getting, just dismissing it out of hand because it's in black and white without yes. even, without even taking the time. And the, the same, the same thing goes for a lot of the music I've covered so far. You know, a lot of it, uh, some of the very early stuff, it sounds quite scratchy and, yes. you know, um, and I can imagine that initial barrier being enough to put people off who would otherwise appreciate it. Um, but yes, I mean, I certainly have, you know, I, di I didn't set out to be, to, when I was like six or seven or eight, to be like, I am going to be a scholar of this music. You know, I just, I, re I, I heard Blue Suede Shoes and I loved it. I heard yeah. Great Balls of Fire and I loved it, you know. Um, and I, th I think that, I, th I think in some ways it's not that people, it becomes it's not that that music doesn't appeal or those films or those books or whatever it's that people come to them with preconceived ideas and don't let that initial appeal get to them you know say great balls of fire it it is an obviously great song if you it's a wonderful record if you just come to it with no knowledge at all of that thing but if you come to it thinking this is old person music that my granddad used to listen to or you, yes. my great granddad now for a lot of people then you're not going to let it just be an exciting record. Yeah. And I, th I think that's a big part of what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get people, I'm trying to put people in the frame of mind that they were in, in 1957 or 58 or wherever, up, up until by the time I finish, it'll be 1999, but you yeah. know, then that'll be the year 2029. So, you know, still 30 years back and say, this is an exciting thing. This is, this is, and this is, this is why. And hopefully then get them to hear it without those preconceptions, you know. Well, one of the things you do, I think, that's really good, Andrew, and and I think the same thing for TV and film. Um, I I just recently rewatched Stagecoach, John Ford yeah. in uh, John Wayne's first true starring role, and yeah. um, and it's one of my favorite films. And but you hear you can hear people like. Well, there's so many cliches in it. You're like, yes, but it was the first to do this. That's yes. what came a cliche. And yes. I think you can say thing with, with, and you talk about that. This is commonplace now. 
using yeah. strings in a, a rock song or using these instruments or doing yeah. overdubbing. But at the time, this was groundbreaking and unique. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that that kind of thing is a, a big part of the big part of the story. Is you know, I mean, the, there are there are so many ideas that seem completely obvious to us now. That's that, but you know, I meant I mentioned in the episode on the Drifters, there goes my baby. When um, they played that to, I think it was Jerry Wexler they played it to, who said it sounds like a radio stuck between stations. You know, and you listen to it now and there goes my baby it's just an obviously appealing record yes. you know you you do you you don't think that it takes anything to listen to it but that that's sort of the converse of what i was saying before um in this case there goes my baby doesn't sound like anything special because it's been so absorbed into the right. in, into the common vocabulary of rock music that you you don't you don't listen and think hang on what's going on there you know it, it's just it's just a record you know yeah At this point, um, we still, Andrew and I were talking, and so I'm going to split the episode in two parts. Uh, Join me uh, later this week where we finish our discussion, and uh, we're going to talk about Elvis and a few other uh, groups and his future plans for the podcast. Thank you, and I appreciate all the support. We will talk to you soon. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only, said Listening Bruce. Said Listening Bruce is part of the Southgate Media Podcast Group. The theme for Set Listening Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission. Sort of ready when you are. All right, uh, good. Any questions or not? Re- not really. Okay. No. Okay. All um, right. Just tell me if I start talking too fast because I mean, you know, on the podcast I talk like this in this very slow, melodic, <laughs> methodical way, and I do that partly because I have a lot of American listeners. I know my accent can sometimes sound a bit. Um, it, it can sometimes be a bit difficult for Americans to pass, and I have a tendency to gabble unless I consciously slow myself down. So if I if I start going too fast, just tell me to slow down, you know, and repeat myself. I sure will. Um, I had that advice uh, from a, a a fellow podcaster, Karen. We were working on something, and she said when you when you're reading something, Jesse, you should specifically do it slower than you normally would and it will come out perfectly normal in the recording so that's i assume as you're talking that because i i've got to think most of your episodes are written down pretty heavy right yeah yeah i i pre-script everything i i very rarely um deviate from the scripts at all so yes it's it's all it's it's all scripted I'm i'm reading from a script but i mean Put it this way. I'll just read out a script how I would normally read if I was reading at my, at my normal speed. Right. I've been working as a professional songwriter for a decade or so, and I've written songs with people like Ray Charles, but the music he loved was hard blues. You, you see what I mean? <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so, so I have to beat time. He yes. had been beat. He had been working as a professional songwriter for a decade or, you know, like exactly. that. Exactly, yeah. 
right, uh, but well, that's much hard to I, do when you're not reading out loud. So I, it, I may so have to it. add this little snippet as a post-credit um, bonus thing, <laughs> just because that's fun. Yeah. All right. Um, it's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 